Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Chris Dorides. Chris, um, how are you? Doing well, Mark. How are you? Good, good. And we got uh, Marissa, Marissa Di Natale. Marissa's back. She was away for back. a couple of weeks. Good to have you back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Yeah. And uh, how was your week? Okay. It was good. Yeah. Good. You know, I was in Dallas this week. We were uh, had a client. Uh, we've been having these client dinners across the country. And I think that was our seventh dinner since we started traveling uh, this summer. And this was in Dallas. And you know what I've, in, in these uh, dinners, one thing we're, we're, we've been doing is uh, having a poll at the end of the dinner where we ask the clients, and these are these are kind of small groups, you know, 10, 12 people, that kind of thing, you know, what they think the probability of recession is in 2023. And of course, we have a long, lengthy discussion about what all that means, but we won't go into it. Anyway, you know what I figured out? I figured out that people's probabilities of recession are very dependent on the economic conditions in the place they live. That makes sense. Yeah. So, okay, here's the, here's the cities. Uh, New York, D.C., Toronto, I'm going east to west, Chicago, Dallas, San Francisco, and uh, Honolulu. We had one in Honolulu. Don't ask. It was a good one, though. So of all those cities... Which city do you think had the lowest probability of recession in 2023? Lowest. Lowest. They were most optimistic. Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. Dallas. And it was 50% probability on the nose. Wow. Although I tipped them over the edge to 49 after they got my vote. But yeah, yeah. They lacked my insight. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were supposed to be there and you weren't supposed to be there. You were supposed to be there and I had to do it all myself. And you know, that's what happened. Yeah. You, you know, got the, you biased the pool there. I biased it a little bit. Uh, guess which city, and this is a real test. Uh, and you get a cowbell if you get this right. Uh, which city had the highest probability of recession? Chicago. No. San Francisco. San Francisco. San Francisco. I was there. So that's, I have an unfair. Oh, they yeah, were. You were there. Yes, right. They right. were they were they were like 70 oh 80%. God. It was it was we were we were going right in, man. This we're doomed. Uh and of course, you know, San Francisco is getting crushed by all the tech layoffs and da Dallas is booming. Dallas is just off yeah. the charts booming. Everyone's moving into Texas and uh, they're all coming from California and San Francisco. You know, we're, all the tech layoffs and uh, house prices are falling more. I think Chris aren't house prices are falling more in San Francisco than anywhere else. Yeah, I believe according to our our. That's metrics. right. Yeah, but I found that fascinating. But the but the optimist Dallas fifty percent. So that kind of gives you a sense of the state of the collective uh, psyche here. People are pr pretty nervous. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guest, Justin Wolfers. Justin, how are you? Good to have you on on the podcast. Mate, it sounds like you eat dinner for a living. That seems like a. <laughs> Not no. a bad thing to do. Tell, talk oh, us through Honolulu, would you? Oh, so Studying so the economy true. there? No, the, the problem is I don't get to eat dinner. I go to the dinner and I'll, actually all I do is drink, you know? because <laughs> This I, I is the problem of being the most entertaining, <laughs> most interesting person at dinner. <laughs> there you go. All you got time for is a couple of swigs. <laughs> Yeah, I get to I get to drink the wine and because I can't I can't eat while you know I'm like you know I'm seeing the the the, uh, the group. But 
you know, Justin, I don't know if you recall this. Oh, of course, I should formally introduce you. Of course, you know, everyone knows you. You're the you're a professor now at uh, Michigan at the Gerald uh, Ford School of Public Policy. And you're also at the Peterson Institute, right? Do I have that right? You're a senior fellow there. Or you're a senior fellow at lots of different places, I think. But Peterson Lots of things can be true at the same time. Okay. No one pays me to eat dinner, but my main day job at the moment is at the University of Michigan in both the econ department and the public policy school. Oh, yeah, fantastic. And then one thing I did notice, because I, I looked up your Wikipedia page, as, as you would expect I would, you were born in Papua New Guinea? I, that's interesting. There uh, is there is actually a chance that you are currently speaking to Papua New Guinea's greatest economist. Is, is that of all time? And I say that of because I'm not quite sure I know the second best. Yeah. Now, how old were you when you left Papua New Guinea? Well, I can tell you how old I was when I was born. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I left Papua New Guinea at the age of six months, but Papua New Guinea oh, at the time okay. was actually called Papua and New Guinea. Oh, I the, see. That uh, country was actually a, um, a territory of Australia. Oh, I see. And it was granted independence in 1975. I was born there um, just prior to that. I see. Now, I didn't look up the capital of Papua New Guinea Port Moresby. But, I, but, but I think it begins with the letter B. Am I right? No, no, oh. no, no, no. Port Moresby. I just gave it to you. Oh, Port, yeah. oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I was did. born at yeah. Port Moresby General Hospital. Port Moresby. Oh, really? That's so cool. Have you been back since? since I never have. Never no. Have. Yeah. No. Interesting. That is fantastic. Oh, and I was going to say, do you, you recall you spoke at the conference? Of yours. And, yeah. And I yeah. think it was when it was still my. Or, you know, it was still economy.com. It was before we, I think, were we? we I remember that. Moody's, were we? At that point? I, I remember that it was, was in long... Pennsylvania. Yeah, yes. Right. And I remember dinner. Do you do you remember what you talked about? Uh, I, I, if I now understand what economists do at dinner, they just drink wine. Yeah, in which case, right. I likely have no memory. Probably about it, the economy would be my guess. Yeah. And that was a, actually, that was a great dinner, actually. Now that I okay. Because you got to eat nice this time. I remember the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I remember the restaurant. It was very at good the dinner. General Warren Inn. Yeah. General Warren Inn. That's a classic. You know, I think we had the Beef Wellington. Okay. As as I recall, Justin, you spoke about the uh, GDI, gross domestic income. That's all I ever liked to talk about. Um, And the good news is, Chris, like, you know, 10 years later, and you're trying to interpret what's been happening in the post-COVID economy, and you must be thinking to yourself, these GDP numbers just don't look right. They don't cohere with what I'm seeing around me. I should be looking at GDI, and you would stop you would, if you'd done that, you wouldn't have used the R word once in 2022, and you would have been more accurate than almost anyone. So, I love those three letters. Um, for your listeners, GDI is gross domestic income, which sounds like it's different to GDP, but it's not. It's just another way of measuring GDP. We add up how much income people get rather than how much money people spend, but because every dollar I spend is a dollar of income to someone else, they're really the same thing. Yeah, and so GDP declined in the first half of the year, small decline. GDI, I think, increased a little bit in the first half of the year, didn't it? On, on, for the, or maybe it was down a little bit in second quarter. I can't. Quite it was remember. generally more optimistic. More optimistic, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you you came to the conclusion, I guess, like I think most rational economists did, that there was no recession in 2022. The GDP probably wasn't the thing you should be focused on. I'm quite confident there was no recession in 2022. Yeah, very good. Um, well, it's, it's great to have you. Oh, and I should mention, you, of course, have a, you have your own uh, podcast, Think Like mm-hmm. an Economist, 
And uh, you, you do that with Betsy Stevenson. And Betsy was so kind to come on the on the podcast earlier this year. So if you uh, try and create a fight between us, Mark, it's, no, uh, I wouldn't do that. Okay, good. No, no, good. Not at all. I'll, I'll just say that her episode was highly rated. It, yes, it was. It the bar is high. I, I, I'm well aware you went to her first, but I would too in your situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's such a great economist. You're both, you know, fantastic. She's and wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. I, I do want to uh, kind of dive right in. Uh, you know, there's three top of mind macro issues at the, you know, all related. First, inflation. Yep. You know, where's it headed? Second, what does this mean for monetary policy? You know, what's the Fed going to do in response to all this? And three, where does this land us in terms of the economy in the next 12, 18 months? And there's a bit of a parlor game now about recession. And you can see we were playing that game, you know, at these dinners. So let, let's begin with inflation. And before we go to the, what you, how you're thinking about the future and in inflation, can you weigh in, if you feel comfortable, on this mm -hmm. debate around the causes of the high inflation that we're suffering right now. You know, it's been distilled down to demand versus supply, obviously both demand and supply, but how are you thinking about why we're in this kind of high inflation environment that we're in? This demand versus supply argument really matters a lot because it, it shapes how persistent you think the inflation will be. And for the Fed, it shapes how critically important it is or is not for them to be responsive. So. The standard view is if um, if it's demand, which is to say if the economy is too tight, too many people chasing too many things, um, then we've got to, make, got to cool the economy down, and that's essential. The counter view is it's supply. By supply here, we'd mean some combination of um, Ukraine, of supply chain disruptions, and also the whole world just being a little bit upside down because of COVID and its recovery. Um, the thing about supply shocks is one of the, the pages from the central banker's manual is that you should look through a supply shock. The version, the simple version of this is uh, Putin invades Ukraine, oil prices rise. Oil's an input to a lot of other stuff, a lot of other prices rise. Um, Putin stays in Ukraine maybe, but as long as he's not invading another country, what happens is oil prices stabilize. They're high. People are pissed off. They should be pissed off. Um, but if a price is high, that doesn't cause inflation. Inflation is a rise in prices. Um, and so if, you just, if you're just willing to be patient, the inflationary impulse from the supply shock disappears, in which case the Fed could cause a recession to get rid of inflation that's going to just fall out of the system anyway. So that would be the dovish argument right now is it was all a supply shock. The hawkish argument is... Are you kidding me? Three and a half percent unemployment. The U.S. has never successfully sustained this, um, and therefore we need to slow the economy. Um, there are two really interesting talking points for each. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to give you a super hot take. Uh, I prefer to educate, and so I think there are two things worth thinking about. One, the big talking point oh, for the oh, supply does side. Does that mean you're folks, not going to tell us where you land in that debate? Is that what that uh, what that meant? You and I have different jobs. I'm a, um, I, I'm a professor of economics. I teach. I write textbooks. I want to give your listeners the ability to evaluate the arguments for themselves. You want them to have to pay you for dinner um, in order to get the insights. Got so okay, okay. maybe we're competing. Right. I don't know if you All and right. I are substitutes or compliments, Mark. All right. well, uh, Chris and Marissa, listen very carefully to what I say, and we're going to interpret 
that and yeah. see where where we think he's landing on this uh, this yeah. very important question. Yeah, I think the um, look the big talking point for the supply side people is um, we're seeing similar inf similar inflationary pressures in just about every industrialized country paren except Japan, um, and unless you thought that um, you know there was a Biden stimulus in every one of these countries, that's a very difficult uh, pill uh, to, to swallow. The difficulty for the folks who want to argue that the the other difficulty for the folks who want to argue that it's the demand side is the usual story is um, unemployment's low, employers can't find workers, and they're all telling us that. Therefore, wages rise. Therefore, prices rise. Now, actually, that intermediate step, therefore, wages rise quickly, is not really a big part of the story, and it certainly hasn't been through twenty twenty two. So, through twenty twenty two, wages are rising. You know, we can choose our favourite number, somewhere between 4 and 5%, while inflation has been up at 7 or 8. That doesn't sound like a tight labour market is driving wages and therefore business costs up. So that says there's something else going on. Um, so, yeah, I think you actually probably don't need to listen too hard to hear me saying, um, I don't think it's all demand. Um, and the real test of that theory is going to be the next six months. Absolutely. Um, because yeah. the real one-offs are falling out of the system, right? So the um, energy price shock is a really big one that's disappearing. Um, we're seeing rents coming right down right now. Um, we're not seeing wages take off so far. A little bit of you're a little bit more worried this week than we were last month. Um, so um, you know, if things keep moving along at sort of seven or eight percent inflation over the next 12 months, then mark my words, I will definitely revise my view. Um, but every time I talk to smart market economists, including folks on this podcast, um, they show me numbers that suggest that, um, you know, inflation's coming down to three point something by the end of 2024, two point something if you're an optimist and four point something if you're a crazy pessimist. Um, and so what that means is that within a year or two, inflation in the public imagination will be a much less pressing issue. Um, and I think that's actually a really important framing for all of us thinking forward, which is right now you go to the grocery store and everything's expensive and you go to the gas station. It's not as bad as it was, but you know we've been complaining about that for a while. And inflation has been politically salient. It's salient in people's lives. It's been worse than it normally would be because the prices that are most salient have been the ones rising the quickest, groceries and gas, right? Um, when it's things like healthcare expenses, people never notice. Um, and once it comes down to three point something, that's going to feel a lot like the kind of one point something that it used to be. Right. Maybe only two points different. And then we've moved from uh, the whole world is on fire to the Fed is uncomfortable. And so I think the next year and a half, there's this very clear shift from, you know, seven to eight to two or three or four point something. And then what happens after that, it will really disappear from the public consciousness a lot. Yeah. Let, let me, that, that, that's all kind of very consistent is kind of the way I think about it as well. One thing, one thing I wanted to test out on you mm -hmm. is that uh, that's kind of an added dimension to this uh, supply side generated inflation that makes it different and a little bit idiosyncratic yeah. was that it was two supply shocks. The first one was the pandemic that messed up supply chains 
to this day. I mean, new vehicle prices are still going right. north because Japan and Germany can't get their production up to typical speeds because of supply chain issues coming out of Ukraine for Germany and China for Japan and labor supply disruptions, which still continue to this day. Mm -hmm. I mean, people mm -hmm. are long COVID and childcare right. issues, you know, they're still playing immigration, you know, still playing a role. And then all that you had that underlying kind of inflationary uh, force in place. And then you get nailed by the, the Russian invasion. Yeah. Oil prices spike, which is kind of the single most important price in people's minds when they're thinking about, you know, where their financial health and also where the inflation is headed. And these two things kind of conflated earlier this year. And that's when inflation expectations really took off. If you look at the surveys, bond market expectations around inflation, but probably more importantly, in terms of wage demands, uh, consumer expectations. You know, you mm -hmm. look at the University of Michigan survey on uh, consumer expectation, inflation expectations, or the New York Fed survey, same thing. So it was, it's, it's supply. It's still supply. Mostly, now, admittedly, if the economy was flat on its back and unemployment was at six percent, that this wouldn't have happened. But economies of full employment are pretty, pretty darn close. And then these two things, came, these two supply shocks came together and conflated with each other in the minds of people. And that that's yeah. really when this thing metastasized. And that's when, of course, the Federal Reserve and other central banks went on DEFCON 1. Does that, does that resonate, that kind of I, argument? I, I think that's right. And what's important coming out of that is, you know, the language of this argument a year and a half ago was team transitory. Um, and in some sense, the Putin shock will be about as transitory as our models suggest it'll be. Um, the COVID shock's not that transitory just because this was the largest economic disruption of our lifetimes. And the idea that you can just shut down the economy and reopen it the next day and there's not going to be some kinks to work out of the system as we have the largest sectoral shift between, you know, first to services and then back to goods. Um, the fact that, you could, you know, the claim that things could just turn around on a dime is obviously silly. Um, so the basic premise of Team Transitory was it's supply shocks and supply shocks dissipate. And the political mistake they made is transitory in Washington means two weeks. <laughs> transitory in economics probably meant one year. And in reality, this time transitory was twice as long as that. Right. Um, and so, you know, we'll see over the next year. If inflation's not down to three point something in, in a year, a year and a half, um, I think then it's time to say this whole thing, you know, team transitory was wrong. And Team supply shock was wrong, and it was all about demand, and it's all about the Phillips curve. Um, but I, you know, the other thing that goes against it's all the Phillips curve is all the evidence for the past thirty years is that the Phillips curve is flat. Now, to say that in English for your listeners, what we had was thirty years of sometimes having high unemployment, sometimes having low unemployment, no matter what was happening, and inflation just didn't change. So it seemed like there was an incredibly weak link between unemployment and inflation. And now all of a sudden we find unemployment a percentage point lower than makes some people comfortable, or maybe even two percentage points lower. And all of a sudden the claim is that can explain inflation rising from, you know, two to eight. That would be wholly inconsistent with the last 30, 40 years of American history, economic history. Yeah. Let, let me, uh, let me bring Chris and Marissa into the conversation. And you heard what uh, Justin's perspective on this. Do you guys, would you push back on any of that, Chris, particularly you, would you push back on anything you just said? Why me? Because if you listen to it, my, <laughs> now let me, it, I'll interpret it first and then let you interpret it. 
it's a pretty sanguine view if you believe that these supply shocks are going to abate, and they are, right? I mean, it feels like it. I mean, the pandemic, just you saw what China did with its no COVID policy. That feels like that is going to allow it's supply chains to end. continue. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a straight line, but it's going to normalize. And then Putin, to Justin's point, unless he invades another country, feels like you know oil prices are going to stay roughly where they are. And so the inflation generated by the surge in energy prices during the year will come out of the system. So that feels pretty sanguine to me. Uh, and if that's the case, then, well, we'll get to monetary policy and what it means for the the economic outlook, but you you could connect the dots. So so how do you yeah. how, would you push back on anything he said? I think it's all quite uh, reasonable in terms of the interpretation of the demand and supply, <clears throat> and how we are um, working through the various issues. One complicating issue I'll, I'll submit, see how you react, is just uh, on top of all this, we are undergoing significant structural changes. Mm-hmm. I would argue when it comes to deglobalization and trade, uh, the remote work, well, so changes spurred on by the pandemic. So those could be more uh, more structural, they could be more longer they could be longer lasting and certainly make given certain assumptions you could uh, you could assert that there would be a, a higher level of underlying inflation uh, in the future. right Or I, I guess you could make a counter argument well the demographic trends haven't really shifted all that out. We scrambled them a bit during the pandemic, but we are an aging population perhaps that would argue for a a lower, a still low uh, level of inflation, underlying inflation in the long run. So does that enter your calculus at all? Or are these yeah, so non-secretors? Or? No, no, this, this is a really, really smart point. Um, but I want to rephrase it in statistical rather than economic terms, because I think it'll lead to a, a slightly different argument. Um, we had a pretty standard US economy from about 1982 to 2019. And it was seemed like one simple model could fit it. And I used to teach my students an, an ISMP Phillips curve sort of a model or a three equation New Keynesian model, which for your listeners is just jargon for the underlying equations that Chris, Marissa and Mark have in their computers. Um, and everything was pretty simple. Now, pandemic economics is different, um, fundamentally different. Um, And so we all suspended those models through 2020 and 2021 because the laws of supply and demand in very important senses had been suspended or at least worked differently. Um, And in 2022, inside these models, there are lots of deep constants, things that we think of as not changing, right? And Chris, your observation is, well, shit, everything changed. Um, If that's the case, Yes, we're going to revert back to using those models because we think it's a normal-ish economy, but we're uncertain about everything. Um, and, to, you know, I'll give you one example, but it's really just one of, you know, I think you and I could think of a dozen examples like this. Um, you know, it, it, when I say everything's changed, it, it's how the economy works, but also how our data collection works and what the data means. So here's a simple one. Um, wage growth has been surprisingly weak given the very low unemployment rate and the rate of inflation and the claims that workers have bargaining power. Here's a possibility. Workers have a lot of bargaining power and what they're doing is instead of asking the boss for an 8% pay rise, they're saying, how about Mondays and Fridays at home? Right. Um, that would be one where they're taking their pay rise, they're just taking it in another form. It would show up in our data as weak wage growth. If you look at how much people value work from home, the answer is a lot. If you look at how many people are negotiating over it, the answer is a lot. So could this drive a large 
wedge economy-wide between what's really happening and what we're measuring in our wage statistics? And I think the answer turns out to be yes. Um, so when you said, if you were to say to me, Justin, what's the underlying rate of wage growth? I could look up the data and it sort of says five, five and a half. <laughs> but I could say, well, there's a story actually. It's kind of like eight and a half um, or nine, you know, like mm -hmm. because the rules of the game change. Now, we can tell stories like that actually about almost any economic statistic, right? Um, let's take, I wrote a New York Times column during the pandemic, which said, you know, the thing about work from home, uh, not work from home, about the lockdowns, the lockdowns were counted as a loss of economic activity. Now, the lockdowns were a way of preventing people from getting COVID. We have a different technology for preventing people from getting COVID now. It's called a, a vaccine. If we were able to buy a vaccine in the year 2020, how much would you have been willing to pay for it? The answer for many of us is literally thousands of dollars. So what that means is when each of us was staying at home, it's not that we weren't doing work in the office, it's that we were producing a flow of services to our fellow citizens, keeping them safe, that is exactly equal and has the same consequence as giving them a thousand, you know, a $5,000 vaccine. Um, and so 2021 or 2020 looks in the books like a terrible year for GDP, but that's a statement more about how we measure GDP rather than what we were doing. We were doing incredible work looking after each other. Let me try and bring this back to what you're working on. You know, then we can talk about inflation, right? What does inflation mean when half the goods aren't available at the local store? What is, how do you measure inflation when it used to be $30 to go to a really nice restaurant um, and get table service and now they give you semi-cold food in a foam container and tell you to drive it home yourself? Um, so, um, you know, what does it mean to think about the flow of housing services when you're barely home as we were before and now we're always home? You know, so now I'm getting another eight hours a day of housing services and I paid not a penny for it. Mm -hmm. What if rent was on a per hour used basis? Um, so, you know, all of this is just a way of saying, I don't really trust either our models or our data. Now to bring it back to the actual work of the day, um, what should all economists be saying over about the next two years? The answer is we should be unbelievably humble. Whatever you think your confidence interval is, first of all, the behavioural economists will tell you it's always 50% too narrow. And then now we say because of COVID, it's probably, you probably want to double it again. Um, and so, you know, maybe the right way of thinking about things is much more balance of risks. Um, and, you know, as we transition to the Fed discussion, um, one way of saying this is the Fed doesn't get to choose where the, where the economy is going. It gets to choose which mistake it's going to make. Um, and, um, you know, in a world in which we truly don't know what's going on, it really is about choosing which mistakes we're going to make rather than thinking we're going to thread any needles. Well, and that, that's, that's your, the measurement discussion is fascinating. I hadn't even thought about much of what you just said, but it, you know, uh, really, uh, I think strikes a lot of points home, but it, getting down to brass tacks, I'm yep. at the fed and I got to set interest rates. Right, and I got a target, and it's called two percent on the. Yep. I got the cons core consumer expenditure deflator, X food and energy. This is the thing I'm pegged on, and yeah, there's a boatload of uncertainty, and who knows what exactly I'm measuring. Right. But on the other hand, I still got to set the interest rate, which right. affects everybody's lives through house prices and stock prices and crypto values, that kind of thing. So, to back to Chris's question. Mm -hmm. Do you think the the way we, based on the way we actually measure inflation, it feels like before the pandemic, after the financial crisis up to the pandemic, we had all these kind of 
secular headwinds to inflation, you know, yeah. deleveraging and globalization and, you know, the, the, the labor market really up until the end of that cycle wasn't very tight. You know, we had um, very pedestrian wage growth. And that was those were kind of headwinds in the Fed and other central banks were fighting it like they like the Dickens to try to get keep rates relatively low and get uh, get inflation back to target. Now the argument out there in the world, if you you know listen to these invest to investors and policymakers, they the, the argument is that these these headwinds to inflation now have become tailwinds. You know, but mm. they're new tailwinds. Globalization is over, and if we're not deglobalizing, we're globalizing. You know, we're not going to get the benefit from that. We've got the transition cost from going from fossil fuel to to uh, renewable, so that's going to be a cost. And in terms of the labor market, we got all these demographic trends: aging out of the boomer generation, less foreign immigration means perennial tight labor market, and workers have the the power now to demand higher wages and therefore higher inflation. Therefore, the Fed's not going to be Federal Reserve's and other central banks are not going to be fighting to get inflation up. They're going to be fighting to get inflation back down. Does that does that kind of resonate with you? Those arguments or or not? I'm just going to commend you on the courage of your argument that a time of seven percent inflation with a two percent target, your forecast is that the Fed is going to be fighting to get inflation down. <laughs> um, I, I I'm not sure there's a deep argument. About I, I think beyond that. beyond the near term, you know, when you look. Now, five years from now, right. 10 years from now, that, that kind of thing. Um, I'm a simple fellow, so I'm going to give you a simpler perspective. Okay. Um, if I had spent every year since 1985 simply predicting that inflation will be 2% next year, yeah, I would have been close nearly every time. For sure. When you got a rule that works, probably keep using it. Okay. Got it. Got it. And so... Um, you know, we it's, it is really hard for complicated models to do better than dumb predictions like that. Yeah. Like, you know, what's been happening in the past is what's likely to continue in the future. Um, so my guess is we're looking at roughly two for until some point at which the Fed changes its mind about what its target is. Let me, okay, let me ask you one other question about that, and then let's move yep. on. Uh, this is kind of the segue into mon- what it means for monetary policy in the Fed. There's this chatter, and I just kind of on the periphery, feels like it's coming more into the mainstream kind of debate and argument. Maybe the Fed shouldn't be targeting that 2%. You know, maybe they should be targeting something higher than that. The logic being, you know, at 2%, assuming the economy's real potential growth is one and a half to two, your nominal potential growth, you know, what the economy can grow without generating inflationary pressures is three and a half to four. You get into a recession every single time. You're going to the Fed's going to be forced to push interest rates to the zero lower bound to zero, and then have to engage in something they don't feel comfortable, particularly comfortable with quantitative easing, buying mortgage securities and treasury securities. So why not set the uh, target not at two, but something two and a half? I'm making it up three, and but don't talk about it now because if you talk about it now, that would be pretty counterproductive. Inflation expectations would rise and make it much more difficult to get inflation in. But as you're, you know, on the other side of this, this time next year, going into 2024, that's a pretty opportune time to say, oh, hey guys, uh, we're not going to two, we're going to two and a half or three. Does that, does that, does that resonate to you, that argument whatsoever? Does it matter, you know, from your perspective? So first, a little history. So during the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, it became very quickly, very clear the Fed couldn't do enough to dig the economy out of a hole. That's when very serious, very prominent people like um, Olivier Blanchard, for instance, um, uh, 
suggest we raise the inflation target to 3 or 4%. And it turns out, by the way, if you look at the latest research from my side of the tracks, academic macroeconomists, it, there's probably some evidence that 2% is too low of an inflation target. And part of that is because we keep hitting the zero lower bound. Um, we're hearing whispers of it right now. I will tell you in the circles in which I run, the whispers I hear are coming mostly from the left wing of the Democratic Party mm. rather than, you know, Blanchard is a center-left technocrat and that was where it was coming from, sort of, you know, you know the, that sort of center of the economics profession was willing to come back and have a look at it. Mm. Um, I'm not hearing mainstream economists say now's the time to do it. Um, that doesn't mean they're wrong. Like the argument that was made back in 2009, 2010 has a lot of validity. Um, and it's likely that we are going to spend a lot more time at the zero lower bound and we just went ahead and did it again. You know, The question then is how to do it. There was this notion back in the late 80s and 90s, you probably remember it. People, that was back when inflation was too high and we used to talk about opportunistic disinflation. Yeah, that was Greenspan. Yeah, yeah remember that it'd be like something just knocks inflation down and then you just lock it in. Yeah. That was the idea. Um, and you sort of hope it comes for free. And so I think of your argument as being a symmetric flip side of that, opportunistic inflation. Um, you know, in all of this, I think maintaining the public confidence is going to be the real trick. And the current environment, highly partisan environment in which we find ourselves, is one where I would be not at all confident if I were Jay Powell that I could lead the broader public in a sensible conversation about whether to... I, it, there's no point moving from two, two to two and a half. That's spending a lot of political capital for half a point. Mm -hmm. So you either decide you want to hit four um, or you leave the argument alone. Mm -hmm. And could I have a coherent, sensible discussion with the American people and bring them along? Or are the gold, gold bugs and the crypto nuts and the political opportunists mm -hmm. going to make it sound like you're hyperinflating your way out of, say, a big public debt? And that really does undermine what the Fed's doing right now. And I, I suspect that political constraint is a really important one. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Merce, let me bring you into the conversation. Anything here uh, so far that strikes you, uh, uh, something you want to reinforce or something you want to push back on? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my interest is the labor market. So I think this, I, I think it'll be fascinating to see what the impact of the hybrid work, the remote work means for just frictional unemployment, right? In, in theory, this should make labor markets run much more smoothly and job matching to be much easier. If, I, if it doesn't matter where I'm located and I can find a job anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. this should reduce some of that frictional unemployment. Um, <clears throat> And people like to come down definitively on one side of, you know, remote work is great for productivity or, you know, this is really changing the game. But we don't have any data definitively yet to really say, A, how big of a impact this is having on the overall labor market, productivity, wage growth. And we don't know how ubiquitous it is. And we also don't know how permanent it is. I mean, you hear stories all the time of people that, left and they left San Francisco and they moved to Salt Lake City, but now they're coming back, right? And some employers are asking people to come back into offices. So I think it's going to be years before we truly understand what this all means for the labor market. And I think Justin's comment about 
wages and that perhaps it's not showing up in monetary compensation, but but employees have more bargaining power in non-wage benefits, and one of them being remote work or hybrid work, is a really interesting point. Uh, because yes, theoretically, we should be seeing much stronger wage growth than we see right now, given a 3.7% unemployment rate. You know, we have falling real wages, and we have for over a, a year since the pandemic started. That's varied a lot by industry, and you do see cooling across some of these industries where they were really impacted by a lack of supply of labor, like restaurants and bars and entertainment and that sort of thing. That's come down from double digits last summer to something that's kind of, you know, right above that 5% wage target. So I just think the jury is still really out on what all of this means for the labor market. So I think drawing conclusions about structural shifts due to the pandemic in the labor market is is way too soon. And drawing conclusions about the failure of structural shifts to occur is also too soon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's and and this also there. has, you know, the other part of inflation, uh, the, the way the government measures the consumer price index, 40% of it is housing, right? right? So, uh, so all of this uh, shifting labor market, people moving, it's all still shaking out how this is going to impact house prices across the country. Are we going to get to some sort of regional convergence, which regional economists have been talking about for 40, 50 years and has never really truly happened. We keep saying it's going to happen and all the models have this happening, right? That that eventually every region of the country will converge to some sort of uh, similar wage rate, housing rate as people move around. So this should accelerate that in theory, but you know we're not really seeing that now. Um, we, we always have these very expensive coastal cities that have these extraordinarily high run-ups in house prices. And then they have, you know, we were just talking about San Francisco, right? That's an old story with San Francisco. This is nothing new. So it's just, um, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we've seen this major structural change in the labor market that and migration and mobility that is, is here to stay that we have to account for. But I don't know. Maybe it is, but we're not going to know for probably several years to see how it, how permanent or or temporary it is. Hey, Justin, you should know uh, Marissa came from the BLS, so she's uh, in. She's into the weeds on how to measure things. So uh, down down I'm to the DNA, her. yeah, down to the I, DNA. You know, I, I just one counted Melissa, Marissa, and maybe just context rather than counter. Um, I'm forty nine and three quarters years old. Um, in fact, by the time this podcast oh. airs, I may be 50. Congratulations. Thank you, yeah. sir. It depends yeah. how long the podcast goes. You look on. fantastic. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> like, there's no gray hair. You got plenty of hair. You, you lead a good life. You're drink, I'm sure you're drinking plenty over there in, in uh, Ann Arbor. I, I, I'm drinking a hot cup of tea right now, okay, Mark. Okay. <laughs> um, the elixir of youth. Um, but at age 49 and three quarters, I'm totally confident that this is the largest disruption to economic life in our lifetimes yeah. by a substantial order of magnitude. Um, it, it may be thinking about the Great Depression is the wrong analogy. It may be thinking about a war mobilization and demobilization is a better analogy, but this is a generational marked shift. And mm -hmm. while I think you're absolutely right, Marissa, to say I'm waiting for evidence before I call things permanent or call a structural shift, um, 
this is the one time in my entire life I'd be look, on the lookout for a bunch of structural shifts because if mm-hmm. they're going to happen, they're happening now. If not, they're never happening. Sure. I agree with that. Yeah. I think the it, debate is around the magnitude, right? That I don't, I don't think we're disagreeing that there is a structural shift, but how, how large is it? Right? Early returns may suggest it much larger than what we find later on as things do adjust. So. Right. And so a reasonable way of, you know, I think sometimes what economists need to do is just figure out how many zeros are on the end of something. And that's why I actually think war demobilization might be a way of figuring that out. Um, and that's not going to give you a precise number. It's just like how many zeros are involved, right? And what did that do? That gave us Rosie the Riveter. It gave us the entry of women into the workforce. It gave us new family forms. It gave us new urban geographies. Um, so we have seen major population demographic shifts coming out of major moments. Yeah. yeah. I Can think. I, uh, oh, just, sorry. sorry, Marissa, just I want to move the conversation on yep. a little bit because we're, we're going to run out of time. There's a couple of things I want to do with Justin before we run out of time. First is uh, play the game, the statistics game, uh, if you don't mind. And then we're going to go come back and end the conversation. And I'm going to push you a little bit on the outlook, you know, where I know you don't do forecasting for a living, but you know, just to get your sense. Oh, of I just where... don't do it for free. Do, do it for if you free. want to write me a big check, I'll do it. <laughs> Everything's got a price. The, the outlook here, because uh, we have this, you know, we're mm-hmm. really focused on the economy and how it's going to be performing in the next 12, 18 yep. months. But the game, the game, just to remind everybody, um, we each put forward a statistic, uh, the best, and the rest of us try to figure that out, questioning and, and clues. The best, uh, uh, statistic is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately, not so hard that we never get it and is apropos to the discussion or something recent, but, uh, that's a, Justin, those are just rules of thumb. Yep. You know, yep. Feel free. Yep. And let's, let's, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to begin with Chris, Chris, you want to go first? Uh, sure. 56.5. I think I know the answer to that. That's going to be some kind of ISM number. <laughs> oh, very, good. very good. And yeah. given the state of the economy, that'll be goods or is it services mm-hmm. services non-manufacturing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. non-man okay. yeah because the isam man manufacturing actually turned negative it went below 50 that's right yeah right. Yeah, yeah, yeah i just yeah. got the two confused yeah, yeah no no worries so chris that, yeah. that i'm disappointed my friend but you know that was too easy 56.5 no well <laughs> I got it wrong. Number. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you, Marissa, did you know the answer to that question? Did yeah. That, is this, you, see, so, okay. So, so, but okay. well, she didn't yeah. shout it out though. Come on. <laughs> yeah. We were being polite. We were being polite. <laughs> we were being polite. So, but anyway, why'd you pick that, that particular number? It's a strong number. Uh, 56.5 is up from 54.4. So indicates that the non-manufacturing, the service sector of the economy continues to Expand here, even as manufacturing, as you mentioned, uh, continues to retreat. This is the 30th consecutive month of expansion of the non-manufacturing sector. So back to Justin's earlier point in in terms of going from services to goods, back to services, we're clearly uh, moving in that direction. And I also chose it because I think this does complicate the the Fed's uh, outlook as well. I knew it was coming. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> as we get into the into the monetary policy discussion so right yeah. is this good news uh bad news uh situation here or is this uh, uh does this really show the strength and the resilience of the economy and therefore we just have to be patient as uh 
as Justin indicated in terms of inflation. Or but you view this is this is good news as bad news. This meaning the economy is strong, resilient. Therefore, inflation is not going to come in easily. Therefore, Fed has to raise interest rates. Therefore, we're going into recession. Yeah, that's I, my take. Did I get all the therefores right? I think you. I think you. I'm so I confused by someone saying the economy is doing well, so therefore we're going into recession. <laughs> right. That sort of says over <laughs> forecast a rise, and you're suggesting faster growth today is slower growth in the future. That. Um, I would well, like well, to see well, an econometric specification that shows that because generally when things are going well, they keep going well. And when they're going bad, they keep going bad. So sometimes they don't, Justin. We do have recessions. Until it doesn't. Until right, it doesn't. But the recession continues yeah. to Marissa's point. Things are bad and it keeps being bad till, it's, till it flips. But <laughs> we generally think there's positive persistence in oh, the state but, of the economy. Uh, but you can't, you got, you mean, look, uh, the economy is uh, strong. Uh, job growth is strong. Uh, labor markets are tight. So the the concern is that it, it's not going to cool off sufficiently. We're not going to get wage growth down something consistent with the Fed's inflation target. And so it's, when you get statistics like 56.5, strong growth, nothing slowing, the concern that we overheat right, uh, increases. That's kind of the logic, right? I mean, that that's a re you're saying that's not a reasonable logic? I'd say check out. I'd say check out some of the intermediate steps in that long chain of logic you just used. So okay. one of them was that you know wages start to kick out of control, rather than just saying, well, because we saw an ISM number like this, I know that that's what's going to happen. Why don't we just look at the wage number? Oh yeah, I mean this is kind of being sort of again a little okay. forward. I'm just looking teasing you, or, man. you know, you're a little forward looking. I, okay. You know, good news is bad news has always confused me. Yeah, <laughs> and this is, is just true. one sector, right? Yeah. If manufacturing is going down, maybe that could be a precursor of, you know, services just hasn't caught up yet. Right. So this is only 80% of let, the economy. Let me put it this way, right. Justin. Yeah. Okay. So the economy, if you believe the numbers, and we can debate the, the, the numbers here too, <laughs> underlying job growth month to month is 250K. That feels like that's greater than underlying the growth in labor supply. Therefore, it feels like the tight labor market, 3.7% unemployment rate, 80% EPOP for prime age workers is going to continue to tighten. And if it continues to tighten, that means wage growth won't moderate. And therefore, we the Fed will continue. This is the Fed's model. The Fed's going to continue to raise interest rates. And at some point, it it's going to break. break. Therefore, recession, right? So we got to get this job growth down. And you get a 56.5% on the service side of the economy, then maybe you're not going to get that moderation. Does that not resonate, that argument? I just want to go back to the argument I made that we should be humble right now, okay. right? So <laughs> unemployment three and a half seems low, um, but employment to population is still well below the pre-pandemic trends, literally millions of workers below. So I think the argument is the economy is either really close to full employment or it's not. And I just want to make sure we say the or it's not part. Um, <laughs> Well, the one thing we're confident of is it's not miles over, miles past it. And so, uh, you know, how many people two years ago would have said unemployment is going to be 3.5% by the middle of 2022? Yeah, felt right. unimaginable during the deepest moments of the deepest recession right. since the Great Depression. Um, so the deep constants that we think we understand and we think we know, if you, you know, try and estimate how true are they, uh, a lot less than we like to suggest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm in this weird position, Chris. You can tell. I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. pushing back on, on Justin, and he's like right in my camp. So <laughs> I, I have a feeling he might be even yeah. beyond you. He That's might be a little bit beyond me. Yeah. Okay, we'll Mercy, see. you're we'll up. What, what's your statistic? 
Okay, my my statistic is 4.6%. 4. 4.6%. 4. Uh, statistic that came out this week? Yes. No, this week makes it hard because nothing interesting came out this week. I know, oh, it was pretty oh, well, uh, It came out today, University of Michigan. One year uh, had inflation. Oh, he's it. got it. That's yeah. my That's Justin Way to go, Chris. Chris. tribute. Oh, wow. I just one. got burned badly. Yeah. I thought you'd get that. You got burned, I am going to tell you, Marissa, the truth is I follow the University of Michigan football team more closely than I follow <laughs> I've, I've our seen inflation that on Twitter, expectations. Justin. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so this is one year ahead inflation expectations from UMich consumer sentiment. That was down from last month where it was 4.9%. So these are consumers' expectations of what inflation will be in December of 2023. And it's the lowest it's been in 15 months since September of 2021. So inflation expectations are coming in even by this survey, which is highly sensitive to gas prices at the pump, right? And those those have come down recently. Um, so perhaps some good news for the Fed that consumers are starting to, to buy into this uh, notion that they're going to be able to bring inflation down. Now, I will say that two things I want to point out about this. Consumers are really bad at predicting inflation. So if you look back at these Surveys of households and economists, to be frank, they're worse than the they're worse they than worse? economists. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'll try to verify that empirically. But I if have you look, a paper on it if you want to verify. Oh, you do. Oh. Okay. Oh, good. Okay, there you All go. So I'm right, right? Like if you look back at these, what they say inflation is going to be one year from now or five years from now, and what actually is panned out, they're they're pretty bad. I mean, the psychology of thinking what it what it is right now is what it's going to be right a year from now. Um, and then the other thing that we've talked about is this dis disconnect between the University of Michigan consumer sentiment and the conference board, which is more focused on the job market uh, and, and wages, which has been way more optimistic than the assessments coming out of Michigan. And the gap between the two has never been bigger. So there has never in the history of the two surveys been such a disconnect between uh, people's assessment of current conditions. Can I ask, um, uh, before the pandemic, uh, what was inflation expectations when you're out? Because it's really, they're making, if you assume they're making, the, everyone's making the same errors on. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was right around two and a half percent. People, was they it were, two and it was a half? Right, yeah. It was, was like it right low? in the sense. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's they're still very, very elevated to yeah. be sure, but they have been steadily coming, coming down. Out. And with the Michigan, it really does follow whatever gas prices are doing. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Very good. That was a good one. Um, Justin, you want to go next? Sure. But okay. I, I'm going to change the, the form of the question. This statistic okay. is at or near its highest level in the pre pandemic 2000s. Now I'm sure there's a lot. That oh, that. say that again. So, this so statistic, uh -huh. it's the growth rate in something. Okay, is at or near its highest rate in the pre-pandemic 2000s. Nothing ever beats a pre uh, during pandemic growth rate, right? Because they were crazy. Oh, I see. Some real economy statistic. I see. I see. Is growing as fast as it's ever grown in the 2000s, excluding the pandemic. Okay. Um, so something in the GDP accounts? I didn't say that. I said real. I, yeah. 
but that's part of the game. We get to ask questions. Okay. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Okay. You didn't no, have to tell no. us that. You don't have to tell us. No, not a NIPA statistic. It's not in a okay. NIPA. It's uh, in the labor market statistic. It is a labor market statistic. It's one that people focus on a lot. Uh oh, and it's the strongest growth rate, excluding the pandemic period, pre-pandemic going into the two thousand. Okay. Uh, it's, and it's it's a positive growth, so something that's ha- growing very strongly. Um, is it uh, is it something? Is it an in, an industry growth rate? It's an aggregate. It's something that gets a lot of attention. It's something we all care a lot about. Oh, really? Okay. It might be the most closely watched economic statistic. It can't be payroll. It's not payroll employment growth. It is. Oh, it is. It's if payroll employment growth is running. You know, you have to. So yeah. that's a month to month. But you oh, said okay. payroll employment's growing at about 250. Numbers like 250, 270. Okay. Oh, uh, I see. We literally never achieved oh, it through oh, the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a great one for a guessing game, but it's rhetorically important in the sense that if you talk about the state of the labor market, one, there's levels. The unemployment rate's at a 50-year low. Two, there's changes. The current rate of change, I mean, this was the baffling thing through 2022. People are calling me up every day, are we in a recession? I'm like... I don't know, why weren't you calling me in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, Good and point. every other year when we weren't getting payrolls growth this fast? It's a mind-blowingly fast rate of payrolls growth right now, and people have just totally lost disconnect, lost connection with how incredibly fast payrolls are growing. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful point. Yeah, yeah. Remember when you used to see you get you get two hundred thousand jobs a month, and it was like, wow, that's yeah, a yeah. that's amazing. That a freak out. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the other mind numbing thing that people just haven't globbed onto yet, but forecasters know for sure. If you look out three, five, seven, ten years from now, on the other side of this adjustment to the pandemic, job growth is going to really slow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're going to see. 50k maybe 25k a month people and people don't understand that they don't they don't, it's not resonating with them yet it's, but it's going to be a very different world you know dead ahead on the other side of the uh, pandemic adjustment yeah but that's a good one that was a really good one I, we're we're running out of time so I'm not going to do mine because I want to move on uh, before we lose you and I and and uh, thank you again for uh, participating uh, today um, would you mind playing uh, it's not a game but this this uh, uh, forecasting sure. uh, parlor, I guess it's a bit of a parlor game, yep. right? Recession, yep. no recession. Yep. So, and it, because it kind of encapsulates immediately where your mind, where people's minds are with regard to what, how the economy is perform next year. So, I the question is, and, and I'm going to ask uh, the other guys and then and then you, Justin. What is the what do you think the probability of of us entering into a NBER defined recession? So broad based, lots of industries. Persistent, not a few months, but the average length of recession since World War II is 10 months, something like that, beginning sometime between now and let's say the end of 2023, just to make it, you know, uh, rhetorically easy. And let, let me go to Marissa first, then Chris, then then I, I'd go to you. And uh, and then uh, if, you, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you mine as well. Go ahead, Marissa. And, and tell us really... where you've been, where you are yeah. now, and if it's changed, why? Okay. And it's really not a parlor game. It's really become a drinking game for you, Mark. Oh, is that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what 
kind of drink? Can I ask? I'm just really curious. I mean, you're a wine guy. Real insight into your personality. We just talked about you asking this question over bottles of wine. I've heard he's even given up food in order to just get to the wine. (laughs) There you go. It's the first sign, isn't it? Yeah, it's the first sign. It sure is. Yeah. So I'm becoming increasingly more optimistic that we're going to avoid. There it is. There it is. Very good. I'm. We're having okay. So where are, what's your probability? So I'm I, I would say I'm at fifty-eight percent. Oh. Okay. She went from well, sixty Justin, at, she went from sixty to fifty-eight. That's that's talking about precision that's too. Humble. That's humble. Oh, she's any decimal points involved? <laughs> Perhaps. I'm I'm rounding. That's you're a r- form of rounding. BLS I'm economist rounding. right rounding. there, huh? Rounding. Well, yeah. I was at sixty-six a few a few months ago. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. why so are you growing, tell me why you're growing more optimistic. The and data is because you're having more cocktails or you're drinking more glasses of wine. But- <clears throat> yeah, that does tend to make me more optimistic. But it's not that. It's it's yeah. I think it's the. I'm just increasingly convinced that uh, we might pull off getting inflation under control without causing a recession. The the my odds are high because I just feel like if there's any other shock, supply shock, energy price shock, something geopolitically that you know rattles things that we may not be able to withstand that. But there's Marissa, have you there's no the reason distribution to... of shocks being symmetric and so maybe we'd get good news about something. That is that is true. And I never think about the good news, I I have to say, because it's point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Think that that I'm we're you know that I'm I that I'm more optimistic because you're more optimistic. You see okay. how that works? Yeah it kind of feeds on itself. <laughs> it does. Really okay, here we go. Uh, Justin, we're going to the dark side. Here we go. Go ahead, oh, Chris. Goodness. Lay it on us. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, making it interesting here. I'm sticking with 70%. Okay. I was uh, contemplating an increase, oh. um, but... Uh, but Justin kind of talked me down back to... back to. I've been at 70 for for months here. Yeah. I remain convinced that, the, uh, that there will be a policy misstep, largely because of those data issues that we have been dus- discussing throughout, that there will be some misreading here. And um, we'll end up hiking much more aggressively in a short period of time. That, and as a consequence, the uh, although payrolls have been great, they will they will start to falter here, and uh, we'll go into recession probably later in the in twenty twenty three. And can I ask you? You said you were thinking about raising the odds. Were you being you were just jesting, or are you really more pessimistic than you were? four, six, eight weeks ago about the economy's prospects in 23? Uh, mostly in jest, but there, there are certainly a, a few things here, that okay. a few data points. Uh, inversion yeah. of the yield curve continues to yeah, I bother me. But uh, <laughs> and In fact, I want to get Justin on the next podcast or one soon just to talk about the yield curve, Justin, because this thing is driving me crazy. Uh, you know, but uh, It's incredible how the yield curve was able to predict the pandemic. That's what makes it such a reliable indicator. <laughs> That's a good line. Indeed. Actually. Indeed. That is a good line. <laughs> I mean, yeah. people who tell me that it predicts all recessions are yeah. telling me that fact. Well, you don't know the counterfactual. You could there would have been Trump a recession was driving anyway. us into a recession with the trade war. You know, we were going in anyway, you know, one way or the other. So, mm-hmm. but anyway. So, Justin, what's your probability, if you, if you don't mind me? Yeah, asking. I'm going to frame it um, okay. first. Um, so, I saw a Wall Street Journal article 
which surveyed a bunch of economists about a month ago, and they said the average probability was 65%. Mm-hmm. And some were as high as 90 and that struck me as insane. Um, so what's funny, of course, is then I come on a podcast and the two numbers that come out are 66 and 70. Um, it, it, is it re- So a different way of doing this is to say, well, we really know nothing about the world. In the last 100 years, there's been 14 NBR recessions. So if I knew nothing, it's a 14% chance. Right. So then I'm going to bound it and I'm going to say it's between 14 and 65. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about 65? I went back and I looked at the survey of professional forecasters and I looked at, you can see how, what percent chance people think there is that there'll be a recession, that there'll be negative growth next quarter. And it turns out that does peak from time to time, which is to say that forecasters really do predict negative growth sometimes, uh, usually in the second or third quarter of a recession. <laughs> Which is yep. to say, in the entire history of forecasting, we've never actually forecast a recession with any success whatsoever. Um, in which case, anyone who thinks it's above sixty-five percent, I think, must think that either this, either this is the easiest moment to forecast in the history of the U.S. economy, or they're overstating their confidence. Um, I don't think it's the easy moment. I think they're overstating it. So therefore, I think it's between 14 and 65, and I'm closer to the 14 end than the 65 end. I'm not saying 14. Because also, then I ask people, why are you worried about uh, a recession? And Chris, they always give your answer, which is the Fed could screw it up. It is true. The Fed can make mistakes. This is where I want to play the same trick on you. I played on Marissa. It could make two mistakes. Certainly. It could tighten too much, and it could tighten too little. I know folks in the Fed, they seem pretty smart to me. I don't think I know which side they're going to screw it up on. Um, and so just as Marissa is right to say I'm worried about external shocks, look, I'll tell you, I'm not that worried about the Fed shock. I am worried about the rest of the world because um, mm-hmm. the rest of the world looks pretty rotten. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all the unknowns have a symmetric distribution, which includes good news. Um, and so I think this 65% is like wildly overdetermined. And then the other thing is, what's the best preventative for a recession? It's approaching with momentum. Um, And we're approaching the end of 2022 with a ton of momentum. So it'll require a really negative shock to knock that momentum down to zero. Um, And so let me end with, I know I've been running long here, Mark. I just want to make sure. No, not at all. I mean, if you have time, that's fine. I want to run a sociological insight by you. Mm -hmm. It is simply that economists are trained to look for the worst in everything. As a result, and journalists only want to tell stories about things that can go wrong. Mm. That means all the happy stories don't go untold, don't go told, and all the happy thoughts go unthought. And so if I were to give advice to your listeners, it would be, I'm talking to professional grumps and ask themselves what isn't being said because of the pervasive grumpiness bias, and then use that to inform their assessment of recessions. Look, I could well be wrong. I was once told the single best thing to do is predict a 40% chance or something. Because then when the recession doesn't happen, I can say I was right. And if it does happen, I'm like, I said it was a 40% chance. Yeah, right. Pretty high. (laughs) That's the uh, weather (laughs) forecaster. Yeah. Yeah. So let me predict 40%. But the truth is that's my public number in my heart. I actually think it's a little lower. A little lower. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'd say 50-50. Um, I, I, to be humble, but I, I humble. will, to be humble, but to, you know, if I have to pick a side, because I do, uh, I think we make our way through without, it's going to be under any scenario, tough year. I, I think it's going to be uh, a difficult year. 
but I think we make our, th- our way through without recession. And I, I actually feel increasingly more optimistic because it goes back to inflation and everything is pointing to inflation moderating here. And I like what you said, Justin, you know, I, I can state with a pretty high level of confidence, assuming, you know, oil prices don't go skyward again, that inflation is going to be three, three and a half percent by the end of 2023. And at that point, you're at spitting distance, you know, whatever target is. And uh, I think the, the Fed reduces the odds the Fed makes the mistake of pushing us into recession at that point. So, and then even even that, I think we have a, we have a fighting chance to get back close to the Fed's target, which on CPI somewhere in the mid twos, probably by spring, summer of 2024, something like that. I mean, yeah, things can go wrong, but to your point, it, there, there's two-sided risk. I don't, it doesn't feel like it's one-sided to me. Uh, so, uh, but um but your, the final thing I'll say is, and to echo what you said, I think the moment of truth is here. We're going to figure this out here pretty soon, uh, one way or the other. But I want to thank you. This was fa- a fantastic conversation. I know it was you're feeling a little bit under the weather, weather, but so thanks for hanging out with us for for an hour. Much appreciated. And uh, I, you know, I need you on this podcast often to counter the dark side, the dark pessimism oh. you know I'm dealing with over here. Just keeping but, it real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> real doc, Chris. <laughs> With that, we'll we'll uh, call it a podcast, everyone. Take care now. <laughs>